We're going to be picking back up in verse 23. So you can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 919. So Acts 10, starting back into verse 23. Uh, When I was 13 or 14, I got my first, albeit unofficial, job harvesting apples um, at an apple orchard that was owned by some friends in our church. Now, I don't know if you could really call it a job. There wasn't like a contract or anything, uh, but it was work, and I was excited to do it because it was my first time doing something like that. Really, I was just there to lend a hand, uh, but it felt official to me, and I got a little money from it as a thank you, so I was really glad to do it. Now, um, it kind of amazed that people will pay really good money to go to an apple orchard and pick their own apples at their own leisure. We, what we were doing was a little more intense. Uh, we were there to get a job done, and so we actually had these brilliant little contraptions. Uh, it was made out of like a harvest, a, a harness with a canvas bag that had a hole in the end and a clip, and so you would clip that up to a metal hoop at the top and then you would just grab apples and drop them in there and as you filled that up it held about uh, a majority of a bushel so about 30 35 pounds you lift that up onto um, drop them into an apple crate that was being pulled along by a tractor so uh, being as short as I was and being that we were working on a hill raising 30 35 to 40 pounds of apples up over my head was uh, it was. It was a. It took some effort. So uh, I always went home tired, but I always felt happy. I got to eat as many apples as I wanted to. I felt like it was a pretty good job. Now Kentucky is not known for being that hot, but it can get hot in the summer, and it was a physically demanding job, but it was fun, and I enjoyed having that responsibility. I, I enjoyed being able to look at this trailer of apples and to know I picked a lot of those. But the thing I appreciated the most, besides our friends enduring, I'm sure, the thousands of questions that I had, was getting to spend time learning from Mr. Larry all about how these apples were grown. Uh, this orchard was, this was something they did on the side. It was, it was really a hobby for their family, but he was passionate about him about these things, about his trees. Uh, you pretty much had to be because in order to do what he was doing, it took a huge amount of work. It was a family effort. So I got to help him harvest what really he had been doing. I got to join him in this work. Uh, he is the one who had put all of that in. I simply got to come along for the ride and enjoy it. Every farmer knows that no amount of work can ever ultimately guarantee a successful harvest. You plant, you water, you till, but at the end of the day, you aren't the one who makes that crop grow. God is the one who makes, who, who gives growth, and as it is with crops, so it is with the gospel and the church. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul tells the Corinthians that neither he nor Apollos, Apollos was a a well-gifted minister and Bible teacher who also did ministry in the early church, he says that neither he nor Apollos nor any other man could have taken credit for their salvation. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Salvation 
is a work of God. It is a work that we get to witness and enjoy and participate alongside God in that. The reason that the gospel takes root in a person's heart so that they repent, believe, and are saved is all because God is the one giving growth to it. But as believers, we get to play a role in God's work of salvation, being commissioned by our Savior to take the gospel of salvation to the lost, making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all he has commanded us, all in the end remembering that at the end of the day, we can't take credit for the fruit that we see any more than I could take credit for those apples that I picked on those hot summer days. It is God who pursues. It is God who convicts. It is God who saves. We are workers in his field rejoicing in the result of his work. The mystery of God's work of salvation and the responsibility that we have as servants of Christ is clear and apparent in the passage we're looking at this morning. And that's what I want to dive into with you as we look at Acts chapter 10. Again, I cannot express, I cannot stress enough to you how significant it is that the gospel came in this way to Cornelius and his household the way it did because it shows us God's heart for the nations, how he has made Jesus Lord and Christ and Savior of all the world, how he has brought those who were far off close to have hope in him. This week, though, I want to, as we see that taking place, the folk want to spend our time this morning specifically focusing on the way that God used Peter as an instrument in this work, showing him and the rest of the early church that he shows no partiality, but has exalted Christ as the Savior of the nations. So let's begin by reading our passage. If you, if you will, please stand with me as I read, starting again in verse 23 and then reading through verse 48. This is the word of the Lord. The next day, he, that is Peter, rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up! I, too, am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for P Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. 
But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that, what John, that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the key doctrine of this passage can be found really in Peter's own response to God's work in verses 34 and 35 where he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God showed Peter through this that salvation, which Jesus had purchased by his own blood, was for everyone who believes in him, regardless of where they're from, who their parents are, or what sort of culture they grew up in. God showed Peter the magnitude of the work of King Jesus to bring the lost sheep of Israel and the nations to himself, making them one under his rule, members of the household of faith. This gospel is the hope for the whole world, including you and me. It's always easy to read the gospel, to read the book of Acts, and to just assume that we would have always had access to this. But we should see this with awe, because this is the work of Christ fulfilling the promises of God. We see that the gospel is good news for the world in the way that it came to Cornelius and his household. But besides that, there's also important details that we should notice from this event as followers of Christ because they teach us how God has chosen to employ his people to involve us in his kingdom work, both in the way that we receive his word and in the way we proclaim this good news to others. And that's really what I want to unpack 
with you this morning from our passage in four points. So I want to show you how in this gospel work, first, God uses the testimony of his people. God has chosen to use the testimony of his people in this gospel work. Second, we want to see how God prepares us to receive his word, to affect us with this word. Third, we want to look at how God gives us a heart to believe the gospel. And fourthly, we want to see that God causes us in this to rely on the work of the Spirit who seals us in this hope. So let's begin by looking at the way that God uses the testimony of his people as the key instrument through which he brings salvation to others. Now Caesarea, which I introduced to you last week, uh, is the, which is the city where Cornelius and his family lived, and Joppa, where Peter stayed at that time, uh, they were located about 30 miles from each other. It doesn't seem like that far from each other until you remember that Peter and those who were with him would have had to make that trip either by uh, walking or by riding some sort of animal. It took Cornelius' men about a day to get from, from Caesarea to Joppa, and it took about the same for them to return with Peter and those who came with them. Now, I point that out simply because it seems to me like it would have saved a whole lot of time and a whole lot of effort for everyone if the angel who appeared to Cornelius had just told him the good news about Jesus rather than sending, telling him to send men to Joppa to then bring Peter there so that he could then share this good news with them. I mean, after all, and, and you have to wonder, wouldn't that be more effective? I mean, Peter is an uncouth, rough, rough fisherman. What are his words going to be compared to the words of an angel? Why take this extra step? Why drag this out for four days? Well, the answer, quite simply, is that God has not appointed this ministry of gospel proclamation to the angels, but to the church. God has chosen not only to make us targets of his grace, but he has also chosen to make us instruments of his grace and workers in his field. As we look at our text I see three reasons that God chose Peter to bring him to Cornelius to speak the gospel to him so that they then were saved. First, the first reason we see is that Jesus has authorized his people to be his witnesses. Jump over to what Peter says about Jesus in verse 40. He says, God raised him from the dead and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Peter is reiterating to Cornelius what Jesus had said to him and the other disciples in Matthew 28, when as the risen Lord he proclaimed, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. King Jesus did not use his authority as the risen Lord to appoint angels to be the primary heralds of the gospel. He authorized 
His disciples, those whom He had redeemed through His work on the cross. God has chosen to use us, not only to be vessels of mercy, to carry this message of His grace to the world. He has chosen to employ His people alongside Him in His work of redemption by making us heralds of the good news. Christ has given His people His words. And God delights in sending us out, using that testimony to bring salvation to others. The second reason that God ordained this is we see that God exalts Christ by triumphing over our weakness, showing that the power belongs to him and to him alone. Now, Cornelius was a noble man, but I doubt he ever would have treated Peter the way that he did, the way that he received him, if it hadn't have been for the instruction of this angel. In verse 25, Luke tells us that Cornelius met Peter as he entered his home, and that he fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Now that's some misplaced zeal. And Peter quickly lifts him up and corrects him, telling him, Stand up, I too am a man. And Peter doesn't say, hey, well, I am an apostle. I am someone you should respect. You should honor me. No, he grabs him up and treats him as an equal, recognizing that the only thing he has to offer, the only reason he's been brought there is the authority, the, the glory of the gospel he's been charged and authorized to proclaim. God didn't tell Cornelius to send for Peter because Peter had anything to offer in and of himself. He told him to send for Peter so that Peter could share the riches of God's grace with Cornelius and his family. So he could speak the same message that Peter had come to believe. Everything commendable in Peter was a product of God's grace and Christ's victory. It is amazing that Peter, of all the disciples, would have been used this way. He was the most outspoken, the one who always put his foot in his mouth, the one who we look at and we go, Peter, what are you doing? The evidence of God's grace in Peter's life is, is particularly sweet. And the fact that God used Peter in this way to bring the good news to Cornelius, a man of power, is really amazing. Because the weakness of Peter ends up exalting the power and the glory and the strength of Christ. It points us to the gospel and a God who saves, not to us. The gospel is all about how God has triumphed over our sin, over our weakness, over our shortcomings in and through His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus embraced our weakness so that He could overcome sin and death and the demands of the law over us. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4, we read that He was crucified in weakness but that he lives by the power of God. The gospel is about how God has loved us in spite of our sin. He doesn't save us because of our own merit or because he needs something from us. All we have to offer God is our weakness, our emptiness, our rebellion, our unrighteousness. And it's by his power in Christ that God has taken all of that away, filling us with the power of Christ, filling us with the glory of Christ, removing the tyranny of sin's rule from us through the rule of Christ, and then clothing us with the righteousness of Jesus. The angel who came to Cornelius did not know God's grace the way Peter did. He was right with God because he was sinless. Peter was right with God because of Christ's 
forgiveness. So tell me, who was the right instrument to be chosen to bring this message of salvation to Cornelius? It was Peter. It was an instrument of weakness. It was a vessel of weakness empowered by Christ. The vessel of foolishness clothed with the Spirit. The vessel that was dead and had been made alive through the power of a risen Lord. The third reason that God told Cornelius, chose to use Peter instead of the angel, was because even as he was bringing the glory of the gospel to the Gentiles, he is also bringing the redeemed of Christ together in unity. In verse 28, Peter tells Cornelius and his guests, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or even visit another, anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. The thing that made Peter go with the men that Cornelius sent was not that Peter saw an opportunity for himself, but that he was directly instructed by God to go. That when he had objected in the vision of, I have never eaten anything common or unclean, God's response to him was, do not call common what God has made clean. And so when these men show up, and the Spirit clearly says to Peter, you are to go with them without hesitation, Peter understood that there was something God was doing to bring two that were separated to become one under the leadership and the rule and the authority of King Jesus. In verse 28, Peter emphasizes that, and they knew this. The, the, the people who were there in Cornelius' house knew about this division. The fact that Peter was there was an amazing thing, something that God was already working in. The Jews had laws and customs that had been put into place to protect their purity and the distinction of the people from the nations around them. In the vision that Peter saw, he saw that those things had been broken down. And so he confirms that again in saying that now he truly understood God was showing no partiality but grace to people from every nation. Peter had witnessed Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. He had received the Holy Spirit and served as a leader among the apostles. He had gone to Samaria when the Samaritans had received the gospel through the preaching of Philip. And now God had brought him here to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. It wouldn't really make sense, I think, for this to be anyone else. God was bringing together what was formerly separated, breaking down the dividing wall, creating one man in the place of two. He brought Peter there to Caesarea to play an important role in that, but he also brought him to be a witness of what he was doing, pouring out the grace of Christ even on the nations. So as we look at the way that God used Peter, we need to look at our own lives. Romans 10:17 tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, that is true. You know it to be true because there was a day when you heard the gospel, whether it was for the first time or whether it was many times before that, and then now you have when you heard it, it was more than just a message to you. It was life. You believed it, you received it. It led to actions on your part where you repented and where you trusted in Christ for the salvation that he, that he freely gives. 
But I want to ask you this morning, are, are you content merely to be a vessel that contains God's mercy without spilling that mercy out onto others? In, in the words of another pastor, Josh Manley, the church isn't just the end of the Great Commission. It is also the means that God uses to accomplish that. So the question we need to ask ourselves is whether or not we hunger and thirst to see the glory of Jesus exalted among the nations. If we do, are we willing to go and tell? Because that is the way that God brings his flock home. It's through his word. He calls to his sheep and they come. Are we willing to do that at here at home with our family, with our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors? Let's not lose the opportunity. We stand in a fruitful field. Let us be faithful. The second thing as we look at this passage is we see that God prepares his people to receive his word. In order to be faithful speakers of the word of God, we need to be faithful in the way we listen to it. I, I really love, the more I've studied this passage, the more I love Cornelius. He is a man's man. But he's also a man who's faithful and humble. Cornelius had a zeal for God. And he had a zeal for God's word, even before he'd heard the gospel. His devotion and his prayers and the way that he gave to the Jewish people show me that God had already done a key work in his heart and in the hearts of his friends and family to receive the gospel. So that when they heard it, they believed it and were saved. Lou doesn't tell us exactly what Cornelius was praying for at the moment that that angel appeared to him, but as he recounts his experience to Peter in verse 31, he mentions that the angel told him that his prayer, notice that's not plural, his prayer had been heard. More specifically, he tell, when Peter tells the other Jews about it in chapter 11, Peter mentions that the angel had told Cornelius that Peter would speak a message to him by which he and all his household would be saved. So on the basis of that, I'm inclined to think that Cornelius was praying specifically for that. I, can you imagine being the head of a, to be a centurion, to be in charge of these many pagan soldiers who were known for their brutality and to be a God-fearer? How, how on earth do you balance that, serving Rome and, and trying to serve God at the same time? That's incredible. I, I just imagine that Cornelius would have been torn by these things on a regular basis. How do I manage this man over here who worships everything under the sun even while I know there's only one true God? How do I serve as an authority here and love justice as God calls me to even while so much injustice is being done around me? That would have been difficult and I'm inclined to think that Cornelius was praying that God would remove the barrier between him and Cornelius and save him and his family. Now he had been told that this man, Peter, would bring a message to him through which he and all his household would be saved. And so we see that Cornelius clearly believed that message. Not only did he send for Peter as he was instructed to do, but we see that he was active. He gathered his relatives and his close friends and told them to come to his home to hear what Peter had to say. When Peter arrived at Cornelius' house, he didn't find a private audience with one man. He found a house filled with eager listeners, men and women, who were eager to hear this good news because God's work of grace was already working in them. 
For Luke's account, we can see the evidence of that. The soil of their hearts had already been plowed and tilled and prepared. They were eager and they were ready to receive the word, expectant even, to see God work, to hear this word of salvation. I think Cornelius is a fantastic model for us, especially in so far as how we should approach the word. We, we see that Cornelius came to God's word prepared. He came expectantly and he came genuinely, believing the word that the angel had spoken to him. That there was, in fact, a man named Peter, who he had never met, living in Joppa with another guy, who was also named Simon, who had a message that he would then bring to him that was going to save him and his family. He believed that. The Bible isn't merely a book of instructions that just tell us how to live. It's not just a book of wisdom. It's not just a record of history. It is God's word. It is his self-revelation. Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And Jesus also says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word is life to us. It makes God known to us. It's the reason we're here on a Sunday listening to somebody for 30 to 40 minutes preach. Where else do you do that? The gospel, the, 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 God's word explains and proclaims the mysteries of the gospel to us. We need it. It serves as the authority that we rely on to know God and to make him known. At the end of the day, the gospel that we're called to proclaim is not a word from us. It's a word from God. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces through the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Let me ask you, do you come to God's word like that? Do you come to God's word with expectation that God is not going to waste your time when you come to sit under his word? Did you come here this morning with hungry expectation that God was going to speak to you through his word and apply that? We say we believe the power of prayer. Every Sunday we pray that God will speak to us in his word. Do we come expecting it? Or are those just words to us? Brad, Cal, and I were talking about that earlier this week, and we all agree that if we came to the word like this, hungry and expectant, then God's word would most certainly have a definite effect on our lives. As the old Puritan Stephen Charnock writes, it is by the word God gathers a church in the world, and by the same world he sanctifies it to greater degrees. Coming to the word with this hungry expectation that God is going to do something is what equips us to fight that legalistic tendency to look at our Bibles like a chore, something we got to do to stay good with God. That we would, it, coming like this will unsettle us if we hear shallow preaching and teaching. We'll come away from it dissatisfied and even maybe a little angry because we want it. We want to share the treasures of Christ with others. If we want 
this, that we need to come like Cornelius, friends. We need to be men and women who are hungry and expectant to hear from God. Cornelius was a man who was valiant and faithful. He was a leader among soldiers, but more importantly, he was a leader in his family. And he was the sort of man who deeply cared about his friends, not just in a physical way, but spiritually. He cared that they heard the message of the gospel as well. God used Cornelius in his devotion, in his hunger, so that when Peter arrived, there was a house full of people who were eager to gather in the presence of God to hear what Peter had been commanded to say to them. God can and he will do the same in us if we pursue his word this way. So let me encourage you. It's easy to do things out of habit. But shake off the habit. Freshen it. And pursue God in his word. The third thing we see in this passage about the way that God works in and through us and the mystery of his gospel work and our role in it, we see that he gives us hearts to believe this word. It's clear to see that God had been working in the hearts of Cornelius' family and his friends before Peter even came. And as he heard Cornelius talk about the angel, and as he saw these faces of these people looking at him, eagerly listening to what he had to say, he was struck, so struck that he said, Ah, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Speaking that way, for Peter to say something like that in some places would have gotten him killed. This is, this is something that Peter is understanding really, I think, for the first time. There are some who want to use Peter's words here to say that Cornelius and his family were already saved up to this point, but that completely contradicts what we read in Acts 11.14 when Peter says that the angel had told Cornelius that it was through this message of the gospel that he and his family would be saved. That implies that salvation had not come yet, even while God was working to prepare these hearts to receive and believe the gospel. It's best to understand that when Peter said these things, he was not understanding that the mess of the gospel, he, he was saying that now he understood that the mess of the gospel was, was not just for Israel only, but for Israel and so the Samaritans and for the, all the nations of the world as well. We know that as a devout and that as devout and noble as Cornelius was, he really still needed a savior. Jesus says that he is the door of the sheep, that we can only come to the Father through him, or not at all. So in order for Cornelius and his family and his friends to be acceptable before God, they first had to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. They had to enter through the door. They had to trust Christ. Having said this, then Peter goes on to share the message he'd been sent to bring. Before we look at that uh, specifically about what he says, look, take a, just take a second to notice how he introduces this. He says, As for the word, he, that's God, sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And notice that in that introduction, Peter introduces this as the message which was sent to Israel. But the, the people sitting in front of him are Gentiles. That, that's big. Because Peter has just said that now he understands God shows no partiality. So he introduces it this way because the gospel did come first to Israel. But now it's going out to the world as well as a result. And then as it's going out, it's bringing hope to Jew and to Gentile. Because, verse 36, Jesus is Lord of all. The one who brings peace. 
No matter who you are, this is the message of peace. This is the good news of how God has worked on your behalf to save you from your sin, to rescue you and me from the judgment that we both deserve. This is a message that is wholly focused on what God has done in Christ to secure righteousness and salvation for us, which we receive by faith. Notice Peter spends all of his time here focusing on what God has done. He tells Cornelius in his house, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he has commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That, my friends, is the gospel. The, men, the men's group and I, we just finished what is the gospel together. There's so much... There's the, finding a direct definition of what the gospel is is harder than you think. If you go do Google search, you're going to get lots of different answers. This is the gospel. It is the good news of what Christ has done. And Peter is here sharing it with these, these Gentiles, these, these people, with Cornelius. He makes some assumptions here. He, he knows that Cornelius and his family already believe that God was, that He is holy, that He is creator of all things, that He's loving, that He's a perfect judge, that we deserve judgment and wrath because we have all sinned and fall short of His glory. That he, he assumes Cornelius and his family and friends have that understanding. Otherwise, Cornelius would not be listening for a message by which he and his family would be saved. I think they already, we can assume they already know those things. What they want to know is the good news because that is the bad news. That's what prepares us to receive the good news. Because you got, in order to receive the gospel, you've got to know there's a problem. In order to know that Christ comes to save you, you've got to know you need to be saved. So Peter, with that in place, goes straight to Christ. He goes straight to the good news. He calls to mind these recent events that he, he knows that they know about. And he tells them about how Jesus went about in his ministry, teaching and healing, overthrowing the works of Satan in all that he did. He tells them about how Jesus died, being killed by his own people in Jerusalem, being crucified on a cross. And then he tells them about how God raised him from the dead on the third day, and how afterwards he appeared to many witnesses, among, among whom Peter was one, and then authorized them to speak this good news to the world. Then he tells Cornelius and his house why that matters, why the resurrection matters. He, sh he tells him about how God has shown that he has appointed Jesus to be the judge of all, how he is the fulfillment of the witness of the prophets, and how that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through him in his name. And it's at that very moment, verse 44, Luke tells us that as Peter is still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, evidencing that they had believed this message was true. 
Peter didn't change strategies in order to gain converts in Cornelius' house, even though they were from a different culture and from a different background. He spoke the same word of the gospel to them that he had spoke to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. Like seed cast from the hand of a sower, the word of the gospel went out and it found good ground, ground that had been prepared by God beforehand so that in the instant that they heard of it, even as he's speaking to them, they knew it was true and they believed it and they received this inheritance of eternal life. None of us has the power to awaken the dead. I would challenge any of you to go out to any graveyard this afternoon and tell people to get up out of their graves. Nothing is going to happen. If we can't even raise the physical dead, we most certainly cannot raise the spiritually dead through our own words. The hope of the gospel is not about you and me convincing someone through our own intellect or through our own power to believe this. It's about trusting that God uses this message to save the lost, even as he's saved us. And then from that conviction, it is speaking the gospel expectantly and trusting that God is going to work in that. God has not called us to give growth any more than I was expected to make the apples grow on the trees at the orchard where I worked. Salvation is God's Work And yet we see that God has chosen to include us as his people in that work. The way that we see Peter sharing this good news with Cornelius and those who had gathered there with him. Peter shows us what we're supposed to say. He, he models what it is to talk to people about Jesus. And John Piper once said, You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and to die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have been mastered by many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. Peter shared with Cornelius in his house the great thing they needed to know. He shared with them about Christ. And we see the effect that it had as the word was wielded by the Spirit to raise souls and hearts up from the dead to be made alive in Christ. This, if you don't know it already, is the one thing that matters most in life. If you're a believer, no message is sweeter to you than this. If you're not a believer yet, then friend, you, you need to understand there's no other hope for you but then to repent and trust in Christ to receive this salvation he has purchased for you. The fourth thing that we see about how God involves us in this gospel ministry is we see that God gives the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us that the believers who came up from Joppa with Peter were shocked. They were amazed, not at the fact that Peter shared this message with them, but at the effect that it had. Because God was working in these people as Peter preached in the same way he had worked in those who heard the word preached at Pentecost. They were amazed, we see in the last part of verse 45, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out even on the Gentiles. This defied their expectations. The evidence that this message was for all the peoples 
was that these Gentiles who had heard had believed. And now we see that they were speaking in tongues and extolling God. The same thing that happened at Pentecost to the first disciples in the upper room and then to the Samaritans in Acts 8 was happening here. Now there's a little bit of difference between the way the Spirit fell on Cornelius and those who heard this work this word and some of those early examples we talked about first we see that the spirit came even while Peter was still speaking to them unlike with the Samaritans the spirit did not come on them until the, the, the apostles came and laid hands on them there could be no doubt still in the eyes of those who saw this that this was God showing that he has no partiality and so we see that the manner in which the spirit came actually bound these new believers together with the Jewish believers in this divine fraternity as part of one body under one head enlivened by one spirit. The second difference we see is that the spirit came upon these believers before they were actually baptized. In fact, it's the coming of the spirit that makes Peter go on to say, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. As far as Peter and those who were with him were concerned, there could be no distinction between them and these new believers. They each had believed in the same Lord. They each had received the same Holy Spirit. Likewise, they, still, they needed to share in the same baptism which Jesus had commanded would mark his disciples. So we see in verse 48, Peter commanding these new believers to be baptized in the name of Christ. The Holy Spirit came on Cornelius and his household in a particular powerful way. Tom Schreiner points out that the coming of the Holy Spirit in this way was to signify that those who received the Spirit belonged to the people of God. Even though Peter began speaking to Cornelius and those who had, he had gathered by telling them he was actually breaking the customs and the laws of the Jews, in the end he discovers how Jesus truly has broken down that dividing wall of sin, showing no partiality, but willing that all should come and believe this message and find life instead of judgment, grace instead of wrath, love instead of enmity. Peter and his friends may have come with some hesitation, at least in the back of their mind, into the house of a Gentile commander, but when they left to return to Jerusalem, they left the house of brothers and sisters in Christ. The divisions that previously had kept them apart had been broken down by the, by the saving work of Jesus. And the world would never be the same again. I've talked about how important this moment is for the book of Acts. There's a lot, as we continue our study of the book of Acts, this moment is going to continue to get unpacked, even to the very end. Now, I've traveled to a lot of places. <clears throat> I've met people who have traveled here from all over the world. But there's something that I have found to be true no matter where I am whether I'm down south or whether I'm up here in Wisconsin or whether I've been overseas, when I meet another believer, we have something in common, something shared that makes us part of a family that is tighter than any bloodline. We see that here in the way that Peter and these other Jewish believers saw God work in these Gentiles. We have this common faith in our beloved Savior. We share the same spirit and the same baptism we share a love for Christ and a desire to see him glorified above everything else. We are citizens of the same kingdom. Whatever boundaries separate us, whatever differences, whatever preferences we have, we have this. And there's this tight connection between the people of God, a bond of love that we don't see anywhere else. We have a certainty of hope that binds us together.
if you're here this morning and you believe this good news, then you know what I'm talking about. And I hope that as you do, as we see this unity that's together, as we think about the way God has employed us in this work, you'll also be challenged this morning from our passage to see how God has called his people to be one together. How he has given us one message of hope, one savior in which to hope in, one spirit that binds us together, one joy that comes with being members of the same kingdom. And I hope as we look at one another, we'll encourage one another to always look, always live for that kingdom in Christ. So let's pray. Lord, this morning we've come before you and it's easy to take a passage like this for granted. Father, don't let us ever take the miracle of salvation for granted. Help us to wake up each day in awe of what you have done, of what you are accomplishing. And I pray, Father, that you would equip us to love others the way that you have loved us, to be faithful, to speak your word through which you bring people to salvation, to rely on your Holy Spirit as you work, to be expectant as we pursue you and seek to know you in your word and to be one together as we love you as members of the body of Christ. Father, we pray that you would do this, that you would make your word effective in us, and we trust that you will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.